Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Matthew 27. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, my name is Ken DeLage. I serve as the senior pastor here. It's a joy to look to God's Word with you. We are in a series entitled A King Like No Other as we make our way through the book of Matthew, and we are getting quite near now to the end of the story. Well, it is a universal human desire. We give it far more importance than we usually think about. In everyday life, we might not give it a lot of thought, but from old age to kindergarten, we care deeply about it. This is a language that every human being speaks, whether they're English or Saudi or Thai, they speak this language. It is the language of justice. Just watch two kindergartners play and see if justice matters to human beings. Justice matters. The cry for justice in some ways is the march of history. It is the reason for the end of colonialism and the end of Jim Crow and the end of apartheid. Motivated by this, driven by, by this, this thrust, this need, this desire to see justice done on earth. In fact, it would be difficult, I think, to find an issue that our country is wrestling with that doesn't fall into this category or have strong justice overtones, whether that's racial equality or abortion or gay marriage, people have radically different ideas of what constitutes justice on all those things. But everybody's aiming for what they think justice is about those different issues. The drive for justice is deep in our soul. We all want justice, which is what makes the scene before us this morning so disturbing, so difficult. I'm going to read this in smaller, we might say, bite-sized portions. So look with me, if you will. We're in Matthew 27. We're going to read our first paragraph beginning in verse 11. Follow along with me in God's Word. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. God's word. So Jesus is on trial before the Roman governor Pilate. He is there because the Jewish leaders have brought him there. He's had his trial before them. They found him guilty of blasphemy. They believe that he is worthy of death, but they don't have the authority to command it. And so they drag Jesus before Pilate, who does hold the power of life and death over his 
subjects, and the trial begins. Jesus is on trial. And the charge against him, the primary charge, is articulated in a question that Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? He didn't come up with this question on his own, right? That was the, that was the main thrust of the accusation that the, that the religious leaders had brought against Jesus. And it was a smart one. Because it had enough truth to it to stick. Because Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the Davidic king. Now we all know that he is a king like no other. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom to compete with Rome, to tear down Rome. But when the Roman leader is told there's a guy claiming to be king, well, he needs to pay attention to that. See, Pilate's job... Don't think that just because Pilate is the judge here that he's actually after justice. That would probably be a little naive of us to assume. Now, if he can get to justice, good for him. But his main goal is to keep the peace in Jerusalem. His main goal is to make sure that that Roman sovereignty, that Roman oversight continues, and preferably that it continues without a lot of rebellions. Rebellions cost a lot of money. Rome's going to win. They just don't want to have to send another army. So keep the peace. And we give you the authority over life and death. Not so much for justice, but so that you can keep the peace in the city where you are. So he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers in a similar way that he did with the religious leaders at his first trial. And he says, you have said so. Which is to say, yes, but not in the way that you're thinking. And then we all kind of wait for Jesus to explain himself. And let me tell you, if Jesus had explained himself, he would have acquitted himself. And so he held his tongue and answered not a word and didn't try to defend himself because he was submitted to the Father's will as this happens. And so the elders and the chief priests, they keep accusing, lobbing one accusation after another, after another. Jesus stands silent. He answers not a word, and Pilate is amazed. No, Pilate is greatly amazed. Something is beginning to dawn in the mind of Pilate right here. He's beginning to perceive two things. Number one, the religious leaders really hate this guy. They they are vehement against him. And number two, I think he's probably innocent. The religious leaders, let's just say, they're not here for the good of Rome, you know? Hey, Pilate, we really care about, you know, this guy claims to be king, and that could be a threat to you. So, you know, out of the goodness of our hearts for our, our patriotism towards Rome, we're bringing... No, he, he sees through that. He's aware that's not why they're there. They hate this one called Jesus, and Jesus probably has done nothing to deserve a capital offense. And so Pilate begins to consider ways to let Jesus go. 
what could I do in this political sea that I'm swimming in to figure out a way to let Jesus go? And he realizes he has an opportunity right in front of him. And that's what we read in our next paragraph. So look again in your Bibles as I read from verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they then had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. He said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So Pilate has a tradition. He has a tradition every year on the Passover. It's kind of a, a present to the multitudes. Hey, every year I've got this tradition. I'm going to release a prisoner, whomever you guys think should be released. Now, he's thinking this and thinking, all right, here's my opportunity to get Jesus released. When all the people rise up and say, let's let, you know, give us Jesus. He's not guilty then I can let him go and the religious leaders will kind of have to go away because they're going to see that everybody wants Jesus released. And so he brings forth Barabbas. Now Barabbas is notorious. People know his name. And they know his name because his name is associated with political violence, with spreading an insurrection. He is a leader in an uprising, a kind of underground uprising, trying to overthrow Rome. Pilate, rather naively, thought that the Jewish people would want to see him destroyed and Jesus freed. The problem, politically, if you will, is that Barabbas was a bit of a folk hero to these folks who didn't much care for Rome and were kind of glad for some people to cause trouble for Rome. So, Barabbas comes forward, and as he comes forward, we're not supposed to miss the irony of this. Jesus is being accused of being the king of the Jews, that is, trying to overthrow Rome by power, and start an insurrection against Rome, and Barabbas is actually doing those things. He's actually the insurrectionist, the terrorist, the guy that Rome 
fierce. And so, verse 17. Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Who will it be? Now, what's interesting that happens right here in the passage is that in verse 17, Pilate asks a question that doesn't get answered all the way down to verse 21. That question lingers in the air, and we have to read all these other verses with that question lingering in the air, and Matthew does this for us on purpose. He's, he's giving us some pointers to reality while he has our attention, while that question lingers. He interrupts the flow for a minute to introduce a few things, and the first is that we get to see what Pilate really knows, and that's in verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He is now certain. Pilate knows the motivations of the religious leaders. He knows that they hate Jesus. And he says, aha, this whole thing, it's not about justice. It's about jealousy. They're not worried that he's going to steal the spotlight from Rome. They're worried that he's already stolen the spotlight from them. They are jealous, and so he knows that. But what else does that mean that he knows? Well, he knows then that Jesus is innocent. This isn't about a guilty man being brought before him. He clearly perceives the innocence of Christ. Now, this is not news to us. If you've been following the story, right? We know that Jesus is innocent. The reader knows that Jesus is innocent. What's interesting is that we figure out that the judge knows that Jesus is innocent. First interruption. Next interruption, next verse. Pilate's wife enters the scene. This is almost Shakespearean, you know, where some spirit comes out on the stage, you know, in the midst of a Shakespeare play. Here comes his wife, in the words of a messenger, it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat. And we could add, with that question hanging in the air before the crowd, here is Pilate raised up in that position as judge, looking down on the accused and the accusers and Barabbas and the crowd while he was yet sitting there. His wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Hey, honey, I've had a nightmare. And it was from God. I've never even met this man that you're dealing with right now. But I'll tell you one thing. He's righteous. And you better not get your hands dirty with what's going on. Third interruption. So that we know clearly what's about to happen comes in verse 20. Again, before the answer, we are told, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You can almost see them making their way through the crowd. 
going from person to person, gathering small groups together, and informing them as to what their religious duty really was. To stand against the blasphemer Jesus. To demand his execution for blasphemy. And so, as the question hangs in the air, we are aware that Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. In a certain way, God spoke to Pilate's wife to confirm the innocence of Jesus, but that the religious leaders are stirring up the people for the opposite verdict. And so we finally get to that in verse 21, where he repeats the question, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And with that, Pilate is stuck. His ploy to release Jesus just failed. And not just failed, it backfired. Because he's kind of committed at this point to doing whatever the crowd wants to do. And he thought that they would release Jesus, but it is not so. But, but perhaps there's still a chance. Perhaps there's still a way that he, can, that he can let Jesus go. And so, after they asked for Barabbas, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And what? Okay, I'll release Barabbas. But what do we do with him? This guy who I don't think is guilty. And they cry out, let him be crucified. Let him be tortured to death with the premier horror of the Roman Empire. That gruesome punishment reserved for the enemies of Rome. And as they cry out, Pilate answers back, Why? What evil has he done? Here again, he sees through it. I know this man is innocent. I know that he's being set up. I know that he doesn't deserve this. I know that those leaders are stirring everyone up. I know that the guilty guy is about to go free and the innocent guy is about to be condemned. And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Mob justice. And it was turning into a mob. People were agitated. They wanted Christ crucified. Which brings us to the last scene of the trial. Follow with me in verse 24. So, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. What a scene is this. Pilate brings a sink out onto the 
podium where he's standing in front of the judgment seat. And, and he begins to wash his hands before the crowd, ceremonially cleansing himself. But friends, here, here's the problem. Uh, water doesn't wash away sin. Water can wash away a lot of things, wash away dirt and grime, but it does not wash away the blood of the innocent. And no pilot would wish to transfer blame. Pilate is the judge. And his word alone will carry the day. And he abdicates all responsibility towards justice. Here's another one of Matthew's pointers. Matthew gives us pointers in the passage that we could see not just the history, but the theology of what's going on. And one of those pointers is as Pilate washes his hands and says, I mean, of all the ironic things that could have come out of his mouth, 10 million possibilities as he stands before Jesus and condemns Jesus, Pilate says, I am innocent. It's breathtaking. It's incredible. Well, Pilate, there is somebody here who's innocent. And it's not the religious leaders who are stirring up the crowd. And it's not the crowd who's willingly going along. And it's not Barabbas who did all the things he's accused of. And it is certainly not the judge who is too cowardly to give a right verdict. There is one here who is innocent. Of course, the blame for this does not fall exclusively to Pilate or perhaps mainly to Pilate, it has been made clear throughout that it is the religious leaders who have been pushing for this the whole time. They have stirred up all of the people in Jerusalem against Jesus, and they take an oath upon themselves, his blood be on us and on our children. And so, Barabbas walks free. Jesus is scourged. That is a, a whipping beating that they had. And then he is sent to be crucified. Now, the only reason you're not more disturbed by this is because you're just so familiar with this. Because this is disturbing. This is terrible what is happening. This is wrong. It is transparently evil. Pointer after pointer in the passage is showing us that Jesus is innocent, the judge knows it for sure, and yet, off he goes to the cross. And something in us recoils, ought to recoil at this, because we, we love justice. We're, we're made to care about justice. From kindergarten up, we care about justice. And that's a good thing. God made us in his image. God is righteous and just, and He always does justice, and there's something in us that rejoices in justice. We love to see the innocent go free and the guilty punished. I fear we might be getting too far away from the Nuremberg trials for some people to even know what I'm talking about. 
Those are the trials of the key Nazi leaders that the Allies did after World War II. You can go YouTube them. It's remarkable. And watch them. And here sits this group of Nazi leaders as evidence after evidence after evidence of horrible brutality is, is brought forth. And, and everything in us wants to see justice done to them. And it is right and good when justice is done. We love justice all the time. But ex except when we don't. Except when it's aimed at us. Then, well, we get a little squishy in our desire for justice. One other pointer that this passage gives us, and it's almost the whole passage is a pointer. It's this scene of judgment that's meant to point to something for us bigger than itself because it's pointing to another scene of justice, another seat of justice, another judgment seat. There is Pilate sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's little judgment seat. Reminds us of what 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of. It speaks of a greater day of judgment. A day of certainty, a day of justice, a day when all wrongs will be made right and all sins finally penalized. 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of the day with certainty. There's no equivocation. We don't know what day it is. We do know that that day is coming. And it is a day in which all will participate. No, no, nobody gets a kind of a pass on that day. Sorry, I had COVID. I couldn't be there. Nope, not that day. There's no excuses. All will gather on that day, we, you, and me, will be there. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear. There was only one standing before Pilate that day, before Barabbas at least, Jesus. But on this day, all will appear before that judgment seat. Court will be called to order, all rise. Court is now in session. You'll look, there's no jury on that day. A jury of our sinful peers know Simply a sinless judge, perfect in his insight and wisdom and knowledge of you. And he has but one goal and one desire. And here's what it says. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you know what that's called? Justice. 
That, my friend, is justice. Each one receives what they are due for what they've done, whether good or evil. So that means no one will be punished more than they deserve. And no one will be punished less than they deserve either. For justice will be the one aim of that judge. It will be the one goal that he's pursuing, and it will be the one outcome on that day. That fearful day. And the judge on that day is the very one who stood accused in the passage before us. The judge on that day is Jesus Christ himself. It is the judgment seat of Christ. God, help me. God, help you. On that day, justice, friends, is terrifying. Justice is is terrifying. Which brings us back to the record of Jesus' trial, to this time when, when the great judge of all the earth stood accused before Pilate's little judgment seat, and Pilate condemned him. And we get our last theological pointer given to us by Matthew. Have you realized this about your Bible, that a whole lot happened in Jesus' life that wasn't recorded, but that the, the authors of Scripture chose certain things to highlight certain things. And a whole lot happened in this trial that we don't even see. But there is something that happened that God would not leave left out of His Word because it explains everything. Behold Barabbas. Guilty Barabbas. Guilty of insurrection and murder and plotting to overthrow the government. And here is Jesus, innocent. Innocent as deep as he is in every possible way. And and what happens? What happens between these two men? Well, the very things that Barabbas had done are charged to the account of Jesus. He is crucified for being the king of the Jews, for being the insurrectionist leader. Barabbas, he deserved to be scourged. And Barabbas, he deserved that Roman capital punishment of crucifixion. This is who they made it for, the enemies of Rome. And here's Jesus, condemned. Guilty, Pilate declares, and then given the punishment for that guilt. He is scourged and beaten, and there he goes, led off to the cross. And look, here's Barabbas, and and they're untying his hands. And off he walks into the crowd, the crowd that's cheering, yay, he got let off. He's declared righteous by the judge. Not guilty. You get to go free. Friends, if you're wondering your place in the story, Christian, your place in the story, 
I am Barabbas, and so are you. That's our place in this story. We are the ones actually guilty that got exchanged. I mean, Barabbas had a really, really good day. <laughs> wow. He got exchanged for Jesus. We are the guilty ones, the, the cross-deserving ones, and off walks Jesus carrying our cross up to that hill. Uh, let me ask you, friend, what is your hope for judgment day? What is your hope? You really have two options. Option A and option B. Option A has several varieties to it. Option A includes things like, don't believe in a judgment day. Stick your head in the sand regarding judgment day. Believe that you're probably good enough anyway to get through Judgment Day. <clears throat> Put off thinking about it. Pretend that you don't believe in it. I'll warn you that your pretending to not believe in Judgment Day doesn't stop it from coming, nor slow it down a moment. And on that day, Jesus will see right through you. And today he appeals to you to not wait until that day to admit who you are and to ask for mercy. This is why he was condemned, so that you wouldn't have to be, friend. Which leads us to option B, which is ask the Lord for mercy. Jesus, would you carry my cross too? Would you carry my sin too? Would you take the judgment that I deserve as well? That is the essence of becoming a Christian. Repentance and faith. Trusting Jesus to take away your judgment for you. But what's the application for Christians here? Say you, you, you have come to Christ. What is our application? Friend, the application here, this is, this is a fighting passage for you, all right? I want to bring this right into your life. This is a fighting passage for, you're going to need this. You're going to need this to have a fighting faith because, because the enemy is going to come and he's going to remind you of your guilt. And he's going to hold it up in your face. And if it's not the enemy, don't worry, your conscience will do it. Your conscience will remind you of your guilt. And we'll hold it up in your face. And we'll tell you, you've got no business drawing near to God. Not you. Not now. This is the work of Satan. Have you realized that he speaks true things? They are lies not because they're 100% wrong. They're lies because of what he doesn't say. He will remind you of your guilt. He will never remind you of this story. Not once. That, dear friend, is your role, Christian. When Satan comes to you and reminds you of your guilt, best plan, admit that he's right. Best, you got me? Yep. Yep. You know what? Actually, no. I'm worse than that. You don't know the half of it. 
Sometimes I thank God that we don't know the half of it. Admit it. Yep, you're right. But, but there was once this innocent man condemned. And God is just. God is just. And he was carrying my sin. He carried all my sin. Not a little bit, not a fraction, not most, not 99%, not everything except the most recent or except the most wicked. He took it all, dear friend. He took it all and he took that cross and he went on up the hill so that you would never, ever hear the words from God, guilty. So that we would instead receive the words that Barnabas did. You're free. You're, you're fine. Go. Go. You're free. Friend, the response to this, Christian, the response to this is a kind of faith. It's not the kind of faith that just says, I believe that happened. It's the kind of faith that grabs hold of that in the middle of the week and said, that happened for me. That happened for me. This week, this sin, this problem. Of course I don't deserve God. Since when's that ever been a thing? But Jesus took my punishment for me, and in him I have trusted, and in him I trust today, and in him I will trust on that last day. What is our hope in life and death? This is it right here. This is it. We're gonna, reminds me of one of the songs that we sang, and we're actually going to sing it in a minute. Third verse, I think, says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Now, how in the world are you going to have no guilt in life? No guilt in life? You must be a different kind of human than me. No fear in death? Approaching that great white throne of judgment? Well, this is the power of Christ in me. This isn't my declaration of my own deserts or my own innocence. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I will stand. Friend, that's the call of this passage. To stand in the power of Christ, in your skin, in this real world. To stand as a child of God, still a sinner, but a forgiven sinner. Because of this work of Jesus in taking our judgment for us. So we get to stand in the power of Christ. Let's stand in the power of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would fill us afresh right now with your spirit, that we would believe these things, that, that you would throughout the week remind us of these things and reveal to us when we're not believing these things, when we're believing the lies of the enemy, Lord, Bring us back time and again to the simple truth 
that you bore our guilt for us. Spirit, be at work in each of us. Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't turned to you, oh Lord, would you draw them to yourself even now? They would look to you for forgiveness. And Lord, now as we worship, would you receive from us praises which are due to your name? Amen.